New year, new decade. Welcome to the future. It's 2020 and you're tuned into the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Monthly Podcast. Featuring, as always, sounds and ideas that inspire us, the team behind AquariumDrunkard.com. My name is Justin Gage here in Los Angeles. I'm joined by Jason Woodbury in Arizona. Our guest this episode is guitarist and composer Jeff Parker. He's best known for his work with Tortoise, the Chicago underground quartet, and Isotope 217. And he's worked with a wide cast of notable players, including Brian Blade, Bill Callahan, Micaiah McRaven, Joshua Abrams, Rob Mazurik, and many more. In 2016, he released The New Breed, a tribute to his late father, and now a record for his mother, Sweet for Max Brown. Like The New Breed, this LP blends deep Dilla-inspired grooves, clipped R&B samples, and Parker's beautiful guitar. Often languid, occasionally frenzied, but always powerfully soulful. Indeed, it's another winner of a record for Chicago's International Anthem, an outfit which has established itself as one of the key labels in underground jazz and is being released in collaboration with the legendary Nonesuch imprint. Parker's been making some of our very favorite records these days, melodic, nuanced, and surprising. So let's jump in. Here's Jason with Jeff Parker. Thanks for taking the time to join us here on the Transmissions podcast. You know, one of your two 2016 releases, uh, The New Breed, was a tribute to your father, Ernie, and uh, was sort of named for the the Afrocentric clothing store that he owned when you were growing up in Connecticut. This new one, Sweet for Max Brown, focuses on your mother. And I wondered how soon after finishing The New Breed did the idea of centering a work around your mom uh, occur to you? Pretty soon. I would say. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when I was making The New Breed, I was wor- already working on the record. And, that, you know, he got, he was sick for a while, and then he passed away uh, while I was making the record. So it kind of uh, not even deliberately became a tribute to him. And, you know... Um, I mean, I had, I had great parents. I mean, they're always super supportive. Right. I mean, my father especially was a big music fan, and it's kind of uh, his. I mean, because of him, that I ended up pursuing music. But it was kind of a drag. I mean, a drag that he didn't get to see how well the record was received. Um, because people really liked it, you know. Um, So I just wanted to make something for her while she was still around to see it. And she's already, like, she's over the moon. Yeah. (laughs) About it. So so your mom's already listened, she's already listened and she likes the the album? Uh, She hasn't heard the whole record. She's just heard the singles. Yeah. Uh, I'll send it to her. Uh, yeah, you, probably a finished, tomorrow. A finished copy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, she's you know she's, I mean, she doesn't really listen to like MP3s and stream music and stuff. I got to send her like probably a a CD. I, I don't even have CDs yet. I just have vinyl. I'll send her the LP. Well, what kind of music uh, did uh, did your parents introduce you to? 
individually and, and together? What kind of stuff was your dad into, and what kind of stuff did your mom kind of show you? Uh, I mean, my dad was into, like, all kinds of music, man. I mean, you know, we uh, listened to the radio, you know, black radio in the 70s and 80s. Um, so it's like a lot of funk, R&B, soul music. Um, but he loved jazz too, you know, um, blues, gospel music, uh, not so much rock and roll, um, not much classical music, not any classical music really, but just, you know, black music in kind of all its forms, uh, we came up listening to my mom just more um she just listened to the radio i mean like she wasn't as much of a um a fan i mean my father like had like bought records and stuff he didn't collect them but you know he would um he had a collection of records but he wasn't a collector um and he bought records you know from when he was a teenager up until he passed away. Um, so this, this record, uh, well, new breed rather was built around a lot of samples and beats that you had constructed, um, years earlier. I think, um, we talked about the record for aquarium drunkard and you told me that some of those old beats stretched very far back. Um, does this new one draw from that same sort of cache of samples or or and beats, or was this were these newer compositions that you were working on? Uh, it's both, actually. Yeah, there's some older ones, um, and some newer things. Uh, when I listen to them, I can definitely tell the difference. You can tell what's new and what was, you know, older? My, I've been kind of into this direction maybe the last, I don't know, handful of years where I've just been dealing more with repetitive stuff. Um, a lot more like drones and like... Uh, short loops that go along for a, go for a long period of time uh, and that's the newer material is what is more informed by that aesthetic uh, the older material which I have incorporated some of is not so much like that. I know that, you know, there's there's definitely a hip-hop influence on this record. Uh, the same, you know, similarly, the new breed has that, that feel as well. Um, but I wondered, as somebody who, you know, obviously you draw from a lot of different kinds of music, um, but specifically beat, beat music, um, is that kind of an area of interest? And, and how has 
making this these last two records, which sort of feel like they're their companion pieces, sort of uh, influenced the way you think specifically about the kind of rhythms that you that you want to play over and that you want to utilize for for this specific set of records? Um, I mean, it's not so much uh, as specific as like as even making beats and referencing hip hop as much as uh it's about the process um and the aesthetic of making that music um i mean a lot of like pretty much all my records are kind of informed uh conceptually by some specific framework um i mean that's kind of a thing that i need in order to give me some direction whenever i i start a new project um the new breed aesthetic has kind of become making music uh, with this this technical process, which kind yeah. of um, involves uh, a kind of digital way of making music, which is recording yourself, rearranging it, and moving it around, and mixing it with improvising somehow the new breed the first new breed was much more about uh was much more about that specifically you you're talking about kind of the process of of both setting up a framework and then you know f finding a way to make like a live element uh, interact with that framework is that is that what you're talking about yes absolutely that is exactly what i'm talking about not like a live as in performance element but a live as in improvising um like capturing improvisation along with a strongly informed production aesthetic that in that that is a uh, in which sampling is a big part of that you know well so this record on this record you you team up with a lot of sort of familiar players um you know obviously different people like you know Jay Bellarose who played on on the last one and these these various people who you've played with in other formations as well, you know, Rob Mazurik and Micaiah McRaven, all these people. But but what I wonder is when you're building these these things, um, how do you decide when it's time to bring another person into this kind of very prescribed it sounds like sort of a, a delicate balance that you've achieved with this stuff on your own. How do you decide when to bring somebody new into that mix? Uh, huh. 
do you know? Is it just, do you just think like this needs something that this other person would bring to it that, that, that I wouldn't, uh, you know, is that, is that part of it? That sort of almost like a curatorial approach? Uh, I mean, it, no, it's, it's not that, uh, it's not even that, that deliberate. Yeah. I mean, I've been making music with Rob for, I don't know, shit, probably, uh, almost 30 years at this point. Um, wow. I mean, he was in town. I was working on the shit. He was staying at my house and I was just like, here, here, play on this, you know? He said, okay. (laughs) And he pulled out his piccolo trumpet and played on it. You know, my, my basic social involvement with other musicians has just been you know you meet people and they're cool and you connect and then you kind of start to make stuff together you know right did you did you make a lot of this did you make a lot of this record at home yeah most of it is 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 that the way you is that the way you made the new breed as well no actually most of that i did not make at home most of that I made at Paul Bryan's studio, outed on in uh, Palisades. Okay. And, uh, yeah. And the beats I just made, you know, I mean, just on my computer, like wherever I was at the time. But since I made the new breed, I kind of have a functioning home recording setup now. So I can do things at my house. And part of it was that I really wanted to capture that process, the process of a more solitary thing, of me doing things at home. But I also, I was a resident at the Headlands Center for the Arts uh, last fall. And I recorded and composed a lot of the music when I was there. I was there for a month and from... uh, mid-October to mid-November of 2018. Did being in that environment sort of uh, inform the feel of what you were doing? Yeah, totally. As you understood it? I mean, my studio was a big wooden barn in, uh, you know, in Marin County. I... yeah, I take it that's a very different environment than, than, you know, your home, your home setup, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is, man. I mean, well, the setup was the same, but the room was different. And I kind of, uh, I used the space a lot. It's a tune uh, on there called Fusion Swirl. Is uh, mm-hmm. That's totally just me hanging out in my barn studio, like making shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, I had had mics set up in the room. It was like a big, probably, I don't know, 2,000 square foot empty wooden room, you know. Uh, Right. So I had mics and I had bells. I mean, you can kind of hear me running around in the room and like yelling, screaming. The sound of the beat that's playing is the sound of it through my monitors in the room. Yeah. And me listening, yeah. it's, a re- it's a recording of 
this thing that I made in that space. You know, and you can hear it, you can hear the sound of like cars going by. talk about that sort of aesthetic framework that's really important for you uh did did that song feel like it was still within that aesthetic framework or did it almost feel like it was maybe expanding a little bit of your idea of what these records would be like yeah i mean it expanded a little bit because i was uh i had this kind of amazing acoustic space to explore I didn't yeah. really I had never really considered that option before that. I mean, I'm sitting here in my studio talking to you now, you know. It's a converted garage. Uh it's probably uh I don't know, 15 feet by 15 feet square room yeah. with like probably a 8-foot ceiling. Uh and I couldn't really, I can't really exploit this space so much. Uh, well, it it what's weird is how uh, you know these this, these records they 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 feel like maybe compact in that way, not um, not uh, and I don't mean that as a negative quality at all. You know what I mean? These feel like very like close and sort of tight records um so i guess maybe knowing where they were born that sort of makes sense yeah yeah it does yeah on this record you cover coltrane's after the rain and you sort of do an interpretation of a joe henderson song i think your your version is called narciss is that am i saying am i saying it right uh you did Bobby Hutcherson's Visions on the last record and, and on Slight Freedom, which you also put out in 2016. You did a great version of a Frank Ocean song, Super Rich Kids. I, I wonder, what do you look for uh, in a cover? As a listener, what, is a, what kind of quality in a song makes you think that you should take it on if, it's, if there's an answer to that question? Um, I mean, a melody that I'd like to play one yeah i mean <laughs> i mean that's kind of a uh, simple kind of a s- obvious answer i mean the bobby hutcherson tune i mean i heard it like i used to listen i loved it and listened to it and i was like man what would this tune sound like if you just put like a like a backbeat underneath it you know i mean that's kind of you know, once you start making beats, uh, like sampling things and like recontextualizing them for like uh, for 
for beats and kind of like trying to make them like resonate in that way. It's kind of you develop what I call, uh, I mean, I guess other people call it producer's ear. Where like you hear a record, you hear a thing, and all you can do is like hear what it would sound like if you started to chop it up and like add stuff to it in a certain way and like, you know, take it, slow it down and reduce it or expand it in certain ways. And I heard visions and I was like, damn, this shit would be like dope as hell if you like, I don't know, made it psychedelic and put like yeah, a beat underneath yeah. it, you know. And that's kind of the demo for it. Like, that's what I did. I mean, I took it and I sampled it and I added stuff to it. And then when we made the record, we just recovered it. We just recorded a new version of it. Um, yeah. You already had the template laid down, though. Yes. Um, with After the Rain, I mean, Narcissus was like that with Black Narcissus. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard uh, the original version of that or one of them. The, the, the first recorded version of it that I know of is on this Joe Henderson album called Power to the People. And, you know, the intro is just like totally ripe for somebody who wants to make beats. I mean, it's this great tone, great bass. It doesn't have any drums underneath it, and the shit just comes in like with that thing. And you're just like, oh, man, I'll just take that and put some hard drums under it, you know? Right. <laughs> and I kind of, uh, and, you know, I took that and I made a beat out of it. And, you know, I kind of chopped it up, moved things around. Um, and when we recorded it, we did a live band version of the sample-based demo that I had made with me and, you know, it was me, Josh, Paul, and Micaiah. And, um, and then when I was at Headlands, I just added stuff to it, you know. I added like weird MIDI strings and synths and stuff until it yeah. kind of became this other thing. Um, after the rain, we just kind of started playing when we were touring uh, for the new breed, just kind of as a tune to play at encores, you know, if we had got an encore, oh yeah, let's do after the rain. Um, so it just kind of became something that we really liked yeah. to play. I mean, it's a beautiful tune. Um, but I, there's a kind of hint of irony in the uh, performance that's on the record, which, because uh, nobody really mentions it, but I have those kind of like 80s DX7 FM synth like Luther Vandross like keyboards yeah. underneath it <laughs> which which I kind of did like kind of uh as a laugh like like kind of in like what would this you take this serious heavy Coltrane tune and then you put like you know the Richard Marks synths on it 
Like it's a kind of like it's kind of like a weird irony. Like you take kind of the like most ugliest anti-jazz thing and kind of put it on this like heavy tune and see what I mean. It kind of like lightens it. I mean, it's it's still beautiful, but it's also like kind of a nod to these weird fusion records from the 80s where um you know where musicians were kind of embracing technology were kind of trying to be creative yeah sometimes embracing it in this sort of just like extremely eager way that um that that doesn't always contribute to uh the the material as well as it could you know i mean you're like you're trying out a new sound because it exists now and so you want to put it on your record but yes <laughs> i do really i really do like that juxtaposition on on this album um it doesn't feel uh i mean it, it's it's yeah i hear now that you say it i can hear sort of the laugh in that but but then it also works in a very curious way. So that's that's cool. Yes. I I want to go back to the to the personnel on the record a little bit. Um your your daughter Ruby sings on on this album just like she did on on the New Breed. Um and I I love that that makes that, you know, family connection even more literal, you know, the that the fact that these records are um you know, inspired and dedicated to your parents and then, and then they feature your, your daughter. Um, I take it that that feeling or that sense of sort of family interplay must, um, that must be pretty, um, that must be a nice thing to sort of hear on, on your record. Do, do you hear it that way as sort of a, a, a generational conversation? Uh, not so much. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm a pretty private person, you know. I mean, I like people and I'm social, but I keep my friends are pretty close, you know. I don't, uh, I mean, I kind of consider like, uh, I don't trust my music, my own music, with a lot of people, mostly because I'm not really that I'm, I'm not that comfortable uh, giving people directions, uh, and it I have to be really comfortable around people to. trust them enough to interpret my music. Um, and if I give them directions, they trust me enough to not take offense. <laughs> I mean, I've been making, I've been making music with Ruby since she was probably four or five, you know, I mean, it's something that I love to do. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's cool that... that um, I think it's a cool thing, relationship for me to have with her is us kind of making this music. 
uh, I mean, if it sounds cool, I'll put it on a record. I mean, we have done plenty of stuff that's just kind of like sitting around. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really look at it as in uh, that formal a way. I mean, it's more like me just uh making stuff with people that I'm close to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, you know, when you're not making records on your own or with or with Tortoise, you know, you're a pretty in-demand session session player. You you play on a lot of on a lot of records. Um I wondered if there are some upcoming 2020 albums that you're excited for people to hear that you that you played on not necessarily as the as the band leader but you know in in collaboration with other folks uh upcoming ones yeah uh i mean i just made a record with this great drummer and composer from uh from here named matt mayhall um it's called fanatics it's just a trio with me and Matt on drums and Chris Speed on tenor sax and clarinet that I think that record's really great. I think it's out now, actually. Um, one of the coolest things or funnest sessions I did last year that actually, I mean, that's out now, too. It's weird. Was um, I did a Christmas album with Andrew Bird. Um, it's called Hark. Oh, wow. I mean, it was around. But we did, like, some weird quartet versions of the Vince Guaraldi stuff, like Peanuts Christmas stuff. And that was a lot of fun and sounded great. I mean, Andrew's a really great musician, man. I mean, he's a great jazz violin player. Uh, I mean, that was fun. Um, I mean... I'm Paul Bryan made an album that I'm on that's coming out. Jeremy Cunningham, this great drummer, composer from Chicago, made an album that's coming out on Northern Spy that Paul and I co-produced. That'll be out uh, the end of February called The Weather Up There. It's um about his... The murder of his brother who was killed in a home invasion who was killed in a home invasion oh, wow. uh, in a case of mistaken identity and it's kind of his ode to like tell the country just how fucked up like gun violence is you know and him dealing with loss i mean it's a really powerful beautiful album that uh the world needs to hear uh, I mean, Micaiah's new album, I'm on. I mean, the one that's out now, which was when he remixed the Gil Scott Heron album, I'm new here. I'm uh, I'm play on that a lot. Yeah, I'm really excited to listen to that. I've only heard the first the first single from it, but I'm I, that, I really love that Gil Scott Heron record, and uh, I'm excited to hear what you guys have done with it. Yeah, it's really good. I'm also on his new studio album called uh, 
in these times, which uh, we recorded late last year. That's really great. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you're you're always busy. I just think it's really, uh, there's something really interesting in the fact that, you know, between Los Angeles and Chicago and, and you know, London right now, there's just so much um, really interesting sort of genre-defying jazz music. It's jazz music, but, you know, there's like a lot of things that are going into it. And it feels like, uh, as far as this conversation goes, you know, you're really a, a big part of uh, the the framework of of that sort of you know Chicago jazz tradition, and and then incorporating all of these really kind of beat uh, influenced LA vibes as well. So this record feels like it's really it's one of my my first favorite records of the year. Absolutely. Oh, thanks. Thank and, I'm, you. and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens when you when you when you do it live. Are you going to play those shows with, um, you know, what kind of what size band are you are you thinking about? Uh, I mean, it's pretty much just a quartet. I mean, we worked we worked up quartet arrangements of uh, of all the music, um, and it, I think it's coming across okay. Um, I mean, Nate, if I was going to have a fifth person, it'd be Nate Walcott, but he's so busy, uh, and he's scoring some television show, so can't really tour right now. Um, but yeah, the quartet stuff sounds pretty good. I mean, Josh Johnson, man, I mean, that dude is like, he's kind of in, indispensable to the live band at this point, I mean, he plays, he has such a wide sound palette with horns and like the way that he deals with that, with electronics. And he's also playing keyboards like synth and uh, electric piano. Like he's kind of covers a lot of ground. Uh, if, if he can't make a show, I don't really know. I mean, I can't can't really. He's kind of irre, irreplaceable at this point. And Paul Bryan, kind of too. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear. I can't wait to hear the quartet live. And uh, and I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk about about this record. Yeah, yeah, man. My Jeff Parker in conversation with Jason Woodbury on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. And if you enjoyed this chat, do us a favor and leave a review or post. And as always, our podcast is available on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Mixcloud, Stitcher, or wherever you access your podcast. So don't hesitate to point out our monthly transmission on your platform of choice. For a full list of the music you heard in this episode, head over to AquariumDrunkard.com, where we post interviews, mixtapes, features, essays, and deep dives daily. 
While you're there, you can sign up for our weekly email newsletter where we highlight things you might have missed on Aquarium Drunker, plus recommendations for books, TV shows, movies, and other things we're digging. And if you appreciate what we do at Aquarium Drunkard, and if you're still listening at this point, there's a solid chance you do, consider supporting us on Patreon. Sweatshirts and Aquarium Drunkard t-shirts just went out to our dedicated patrons, and you'll receive access to secret playlists, printed ephemera, and much more, all while supporting an independent music resource. As always, tune in to Justin's weekly Aquarium Drunkard show on Sirius XM Radio, channel 35, every Wednesday night. Freeform, unexpected, and unclassifiable at 7 p.m. California time, plus on demand.